This is a Federal News Network podcast. The government's information technology security approval process, it's critical, but can be slow. As one way to speed it up, several Defense Department organizations have dabbled with the concept they call Continuous Authority to Operate, or ATO. That would base a system's approval on continuous monitoring rather than a one-time intensive checklist. Now the Defense Department wants to raise the bar for continuous ATOs and make them the standard for cybersecurity in the DOD. As Federal News Network's Jared Serbu reports, part of that's bringing more commonality to how the military services actually use continuous ATOs. The defense organizations that have moved to continuous ATO models see at least two big benefits. For one, the emphasis on continuous monitoring instead of rigorous single point-in-time security exams means new software and systems can get online much more quickly. But the general belief is that the approach also does a much better job of assessing cybersecurity in the real world, since the authorizations are based on current threats and vulnerabilities, and not what the state of cybersecurity happened to be months or years ago, when an authorizing official finally gave a particular system a green light. The new memo from the DOD CIO's office is focused mainly on that second benefit, raising the bar for cybersecurity by emphasizing the continuous monitoring aspects of the NIST risk management framework. To get a continuous ATO endorsed by the DOD CIO, system owners will also need to show that they're capable of defending their systems in real time and that they have a secure software supply chain. One overarching goal is to make sure everyone who uses the term continuous ATO is speaking the same language, according to Jason Weiss, DOD's chief software officer. What we've had in the past was different program elements, different services, using that term in different ways, and it's created some confusion. So uh, in order to figure out what that standardized look of a CATO is and what level of cybersecurity we expect across the three ingredients within that memo, uh, we are going to be working closely with the software factories to tease out those best practices. So I don't see it as an impediment. I see this as an opportunity for finding Uh, exactly where that baseline needs to be, and then amplifying that further. But the Pentagon's formal embrace of continuous ATOs probably should not be read as a sign that it expects all of the department's applications and systems to move there overnight. Indeed, the memo makes clear that a DOD-approved continuous ATO is a privilege, not a right, and that it can be revoked at any time. That could happen, for example, if continuous monitoring shows that a system has slipped into a poor cyber posture. And system owners will need to meet a high bar to get one in the first place. When it comes to active cyber defense, for example, the memo makes clear that scanning and patching systems isn't good enough. Rather, their authorizing officials will need to show that they are in constant communication with U.S. Cyber Command and other cyber defense organizations to share and act on threat information in real time. And simply asserting that a system embraces a DevSecOps model isn't good enough either. They'll have to adopt one of the specific DevSecOps reference designs the DOD CIO has specifically approved. Despite those tight guardrails, the DOD CIO's formal endorsement of continuous ATOs is likely to accelerate adoption across the department, says Angel Faneff, the chief information security officer at the Army Software Factory. I think it's a wonderful memo and that it just makes space. Uh, a lot of organizations have followed the continuous ATO model, and now it gives other organizations that space to be able to want to do that. Um, I think that we'll probably see over the course of the next few years multiple guidance that comes out on it, which is great. And I would challenge everyone that's in that space and works in that space to 
find new ways to challenge that guidance and to continue on with that. Um, I'm glad that it came out DOD-wide. I think that's like a huge win for us. Um, I'm interested to implement it, and I hope to go after it uh, within the year. Weiss says DOD also expects the guidance to change over time, and the memo makes that clear, too. For now, the initial policy steps and guidance will be mostly focused around the software development platforms DOD's 29 software factories used. The Air Force pioneered that model with its Platform 1 development environment. The basic idea is that most of the security controls are checked and enforced by the platform itself. If a piece of software clears those gates, it doesn't necessarily need to be re-inspected by an authorizing official. So I'll use an example from like Platform 1. At the end of the day, Platform 1 isn't executing a very specific mission compared to something like, say, Kessel Run with what they do with their combat command. Platform one is a platform as a service, effectively. And so that CATO initially is really going to target the platform providers that are out there where other application teams are building on top of that. So in our initial survey of the 29 software factories that are out there, I can tell you we don't have 29 of them operating under a CATO today, regardless of what terminology is being used. And so that's really our starting point. It's the beginning of the journey. We're not at that destination yet, but we have to start this journey in figuring out how to bring some degree of precision of language across the authorizing official community as to what this means. Jared Serbu, Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. Check out Jared's story at federalnewsnetwork.com. Hello and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. And today I'm thrilled to be joined by Melissa Bradley, the founder and managing partner at 1863 Ventures, an investment company focused on bridging entrepreneurship and racial equity and accelerating new majority entrepreneurs from high potential to high growth. Additionally, Melissa is co-founder of Venture Back Eureka, a community where small businesses gain unprecedented access to the expertise needed to grow their businesses and has more than 20 years of entrepreneurship, investment, and leadership experience. Melissa, welcome, and thank you for being here. My pleasure. Thank you for having me. Who is the first person that you remember looking up to as a leader, and what was it about them that inspired you? So there are actually two people. Um, The first person, personally, was my mom. Uh, She was a single parent. And what I realized is that she was the leader of our household, but she was also the leader of our community. Um, She was a staunch advocate for children's rights in public schools, making sure that we got a quality education. She was a staunch advocate around rights for renters. Um, We were not in a financial position that we actually ever owned a home, uh, but she made sure that people who lived in various types of housing we were in regular housing. The people who were in regular housing, public housing, she made sure that their rights were advocated for um, and really just always kind of looked out for, I'll, I'll use air quotes, the little guy, while, although we were the little guy. Uh, and then I would say she was a huge advocate of older folks. Um, as part of her job, she worked during the week uh, in a full-time job and then cleaned houses on the weekend, but also took care of elderly folks and a staunch advocate for elderly rights. Um, So that was probably the the first leader. And then I would say the second leader 
that really came about professionally was a woman named Crystal, Crystal Gaskins, uh, who actually ran a headhunting temporary firm that I ended up spending about a year at, but quickly realized that was not my calling. But in a world where you are constantly managing the powers that be that want to hire all these people and move people around and the folks who are sometimes in vulnerable positions and obviously seeking a job, she always managed to treat everyone with the, with the ultimate respect. And part of the business was actually um, managing hotels and getting service workers to show up. And that's a tough job, right, to try to motivate people who barely are getting paid enough under not great conditions. Um, and so she taught me three things. She taught me how to be a motivator and that recognizing leadership is not mandating, but motivating. She taught me that leadership is not just reporting up, but also reflecting and supporting those who may be underneath you from a hierarchical structure. And she also taught me that leadership was not about money, uh, but it was about producing positive outcomes for whoever your customers were. And if you did that, then obviously the money would come. How would you describe your leadership style and how has that developed over the years? Hmm. I would describe it hashtag work in progress. Um, it, it has evolved over the years, I think, two ways. One, the more people I've been exposed to in leadership positions have certainly helped me pivot and make adjustments. And then certainly as my leadership roles have elevated and probably as the more people I've been responsible for has elevated, uh, you know, certainly being managing partner and founder of 1863 Ventures, we manage a lot of people. We have actually tripled our staff this year. And so we went from three people to oh, actually 12 people plus and growing. Uh, and we went from a couple hundred members to almost 10,000 members. And that's a big deal. Um, I, so my leadership style has evolved in terms of more people that I have reporting to me. I think it's, I, I focus on autonomy. I focus, I'm, I'm very clear that my role is to help other people be successful. Uh, I do set very clear deadlines. I am try to do a good job of kind of projecting what is the overall mission and vision, what are the KPIs and OKRs that we need to hit. And then I feel like I need to get out the way. I need not be a micromanager. I need to recognize, particularly since COVID, that people have kids, they have lives, they have ways that they know how they perform best. And so we now have people who work for me all over the world. And as long as we meet our deliverables, I don't need to know that you're sitting in a cubicle or sitting at your computer from nine to five. Um, and that's because I've been at those nine to five jobs where I literally had nothing to do, but I knew I was told I had to be in the office. Uh, and it just seemed like a complete waste of time. And so I'm really laser focused on outcomes and productivity and advancing the vision and mission and not on what does it look like? Because I think a successful work looks different for everyone. And then I would say more externally, as we now have grown to lots of members and we have a social media presence and I talk to people, I'm mindful that the, the probably the most important from an external uh, perspective on my leadership is that I am mindful that I am modeling not just for myself, but particularly for other leaders and particularly Black women and certainly gay black women. Uh, you know, there are not a lot of us. Um, you know, you mentioned that I'm a co-founder of Eureka. So I'm fortunate enough to be in the first 30 or so black women that have been supported through venture capital, which is a sad statistic, but for a different topic. And so I'm mindful that people are always watching me. And I would say that certainly as a black woman, people are always watching you, not always for the better and cheering you on, but waiting for you to make a mistake and slip up. And so I'm mindful that when I step into a room or I show up somewhere, I'm not just representing Melissa Bradley and my immediate family. I'm representing all of my members and potentially sending a signal effect of what other people are going to expect 
as black women. And the final thing I would say that definitely has evolved since now that I'm over 50 uh, is that I feel a much greater freedom to say what's on my mind um, than I did before. And I, and I do that. I probably said what was on my mind before, but in a way that was reflective of my frustration and anger with the system. And now I say it with the expect, with a level of calmness and the expectation that it's important that we are honest around what do black communities experience and to phrase it in a way, not based on anger, but really using data. And so I would say I've consistently been a staunch advocate for black and brown communities, but has evolved from being very reactive and saying, well, don't do this and don't do that to saying, let me explain to you why I think it's important that we take this up and really letting the facts drive the discussion. Some of that probably comes from the fact that I've worked in two presidential administrations and we all know that that just goes back and forth and oftentimes based on rhetoric and not fact. And having six kids in a world of social media, I think there's something, the, the art of, of conversation based on facts and data has devolved to uh, opinions and pundits. And, and I think that's a challenge around leadership because your job is not, in my mind to convince people but to inform people and allow them to make decisions for themselves i i saw you on a post uh, with a washington post um uh interview and it, it you were amazing and it, it's interesting to listen to you describe what you just said because i could see all of that reflected in how you responded there and um make one other quick uh comment about as a company grows, WEPA is growing as well. And you are so spot on. We have, as, as leaders, we have to let go and trust those people that work for us and empower them to do their job and then let them roll. And that's not always easy. Helping your employees learn new cloud skills helps your business become more agile, more resilient, and more secure. Not helping employees learn new cloud skills causes your business to become less agile, less resilient, less secure, less innovative, less profitable, and, well, ultimately less of a business. Don't become less of a business. Try Pluralsight and get your employees everything they need to learn new cloud skills. Learn more at Pluralsight.com vision. Grab a 30-day free trial of Live by Live Plus, and you'll get unlimited skips, commercial-free music, and all of the podcasts and live streaming events you can handle. Visit LiveXLive.com slash podcast one to learn more and start your free trial.